0: Today's reading will be from 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brian. Whoa, that would have been bad. Well, because of the preaching calendar from Redemption Central, uh, we really get—we rarely get a Sunday where we get to just do what we want. Is—is is the fireplace going behind me now? Yeah, that's cool. So we're gonna have a little fireside chat uh, this morning. I wanna. I want to share some thoughts, sort of some family time. Um, things that we don't usually get to talk about because of the preaching calendar. Uh, sort of a random thoughts from your pastor. And, and, and although it's random, here's what I, I'm hoping that we'll all get out of this. This is not just a brain dump, uh, but a brain dump with a purpose. Uh, it's important. Here's what I want, you, want us to get out of this. It's important for you to know generally the vision of Redemption Church... And specifically, how my gifts as your pastor, how my gifts, personality, and observations help work that vision in a local Arcadia context, uh, so uh, I just warn you there're there going to be some th- hard things today that we 're going to talk about based on some observations and and what i 've been praying about um, but i want you, I want to assure you that no matter how hard they are they 're all born of love and concern a- as your pastor um, and Just so you know, Paul did the same thing. Paul wasn't bound by a preaching calendar or even a a letter-writing calendar. uh, But he got to actually do this all the time. And before you start pushing back, I know I'm not the Apostle Paul. I know. But you're also not the early church, so we're even. Okay, (laughs) So here we go. Just diving right in. If you're new here, I'm going to speak to those of you who are new first. We did our survey recently, and as usual, we have a lot of new people who have been here less than six months. If you're new and you're excited about Redemption Church, we are glad and we are privileged that you're here. We're honored by your presence, and and we want to serve you and and minister to you. And, and, And this feeling of excitement is wonderful, too. I enjoy that, too. But you also need to know that that feeling of excitement will eventually wear off. And then you, you will have to get to work. You need to be responsible for your walk with Christ your discipling, your progress, your involvement in your res- res- relationships. Christianity is not a spectator sport. And, and, and what do I mean when I say you need to get to work? Whatever it means to go deeper in your faith initiated by you. Don't wait around for somebody else to initiate. That's the biggest excuse I hear about the poor performance of churches. Well, nobody did this for me, nobody did that for me, nobody said hello to me, nobody invited me to a Bible study. Hey, man, you're a grown-up. And and if you're not a grown-up yet, you want to be treated like a grown-up, so we're treating you like a grown-up now. Get to work. Get to work. Study and and read scripture. Get involved in a redemption community. Serve the church or serve in your community. We have many ways to do that. You should be praying, and you should be engaging your loved ones in a gospel-centered way. Uh, Also, I want you to know this. No matter how smitten you are with redemption, or the staff, or with me, or with the music, or the coffee, just understand, sooner or later, we are going to disappoint you. We will. We're human beings, and it happens. It's very much like romance. Eventually, the feelings wear off. You know, the cupcakes and muffins and floating through a meadow, all the M-words, okay? And, and then you see the faults of the one that you're falling in love with, and. And, and you have feelings of disappointment. That's just inevitable. Um, if you left your last church because they disappointed you, uh, know that many have left this church because we've disappointed them. And the irony, of course, is that they probably ended up going to your old church. Isn't that ironic? <clears throat> there was this uh, guy, I think his name was Tom Hanks, but he was, uh, he was shipwrecked on a deserted island <laughs> for five years. And this is the part of the, of the movie they cut out, okay? Um, but when he was finally rescued, um, all alone for five years, uh, he and the captain of the ship, as they were motoring away, uh, stared back at the deserted island and the captain noticed that there were three structures that had been built on the beach, on the berm, the sandy berm there. And he said, oh, I see you got to work and built some stuff. And he said, yeah. And he said, well, tell me about those buildings. What's the one on the left? And he said, that's my house. That's where I live he said, well, what's, what's the one on the right? And he said, that's my church. That's where I go and worship God. He said, well, what's the one in, one in the middle? And he goes, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> but more than the music, the staff, the coffee, and the ministry programming, this is the one thing that becomes, at some point, a stumbling block for many people. At Redemption Church, we preach the word. We preach the word. And that happens to be biblical. That passage that Brian read for you, let me, let me just take a few minutes to talk about it. This is Paul writing to Timothy, probably the last letter he wrote before he was executed. These are his last words, essentially, that we have recorded and he writes, I charge you. And I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living of the dead. He's charging him and he's saying, in the presence of God and his son, this is a serious charge. It's almost like he's saying, you need to accept this covenant. I'm calling you to something that's way bigger than you and I'm doing it um, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who judges, judges the living and the dead. You know, you and I, Whether we say it out loud or not, we judge the living, don't we? We judge everybody. We judge people around us, work, family. We judge the living, but there's only one who can judge the dead. And all of us will eventually be judged by him. Are we in him or not in him? Only one can judge the dead, and that's why Paul appeals to him here. He says, uh, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, this is what I charge to you. Here you go. Preach the word preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. There are two times that as a pastor I am called to preach God's word. Two times only, that's it. In season and out of season. It's another way of saying all the time, okay? Whether people in season are ready to hear it or whether it's out of season they're really not ready to hear it and they don't want to hear it, we're called to preach the word at Redemption Church. And, and then he says that what the word of God will do is reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That word reprove means to expose all the faults that you and I have. It, it, it's, it's a way of saying here, it's like a spouse saying here's where you're falling short, only this is God telling us God's word. And, and that's that is the, the word reprove, and then rebuke is not only am I going to not only is the God a word going to expose those faults, but now we're going to hurt your feelings. We're going to tell you to stop it, and it's not acceptable. That's what that word means. We're going to hurt your feelings. Haven't your feelings been hurt by the word of God when you discover something that doesn't line up with your worldview? Of course. And then he says and exhort. In other words, expose the fault you got to stop it, but now you're going to turn to something better, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exhort, encourage, give you a path to do something better, which is always the gospel. And, and, and we're to do it with complete patience and teaching. And I understand I don't always do it with complete patience. I'm an impatient guy. I'm a human being. And I'm not making an excuse. But I understand. I, I, I fall short too, and I get that. But also I'm called to teach in the, in, in the midst of it. With complete patience and teaching. I've been told before sometimes that when I proclaim the gospel on Sunday morning, I teach too much or that I shouldn't teach at all. But we're called not only to proclaim the gospel, but also there has to be teaching and instruction in the midst of it. So it's right here. So um, there you go. Why? Why are we supposed to do this? Well, Paul answers that question. For the time is coming, and it is here right now, my brothers and sisters, it is here right now, when people will not endure sound teaching. That's why we have to teach, because people won't endure sound teaching. You know what that word sound literally means in the Greek? It means clean and pure, as in hygiene. (laughs) Hygiene. You You ever been around somebody who has extraordinarily poor hygiene, and you don't want to be around them because they don't smell, right? And yet, and yet, people in this world are willing to turn away from the sweet, pure, holy fragrance of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are willingly turning to things that stink, that stink. We we are turning from the scent of roses in our world to coffee breath, if you want to put it that way. Now, which is going to be better, okay? So they won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. I'm just going to go around and look for somebody to confirm my worldview. That's all I want. And trust me, there is a church out there for you if that's what you're looking for. They do exist, but they probably don't preach the word of God. They don't proclaim the gospel. And these people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And he's not talking about people outside of the church. He's talking about people in the church. People who ostensibly know uh, who Christ is. So we are going to preach the word and proclaim the gospel at Redemption Church. This isn't a season that we're in. It's going to continue as long as we're a church. And you just need to understand that. And that leads perfectly into my next thing that I want to talk about. Uh, I'm going to talk more deeply for just a few minutes about one issue. It's a very big issue, but it's not the only issue. Please hear me, it's not the only issue, but it is is a big issue. And I don't want to be defined by this issue, although I know at the end of today, I probably will by some of you, because I know how this works, but but I just want to get it on record and on the recording, that I I don't want to be defined by this issue, but it's a big issue. So for today, we're going to have a deep dive into this, and I'm going to start by talking about John Piper. Some of you know who John Piper is. By worldly standards, he is a tremendously successful, by all quantitative um, measurements. He's a very successful pastor. He has a big church. He's written many books. He He speaks at conferences, and he has tremendous influence. And so you look at his life, and you wouldn't think that he has many disappointments or frustrations. I was reading his book on preaching last fall. It's a very good book. I was surprised. I read nothing but preaching books last year because I wanted to get better at preaching. And frankly, I didn't think Pipers would be the best, and it was the best. But in the midst of that book, he he also talked about something that, that was stunning to me, but also affirmed something that I tend to feel. He said his single greatest frustration as a pastor is that it just seems, based on observation, that the gospel doesn't quite make the difference in lives the way it really should. He teaches, he preaches, he shepherds, and he prays, but he just doesn't feel like there's that transformation that, that the gospel and God's word should be having on the people, the, the tens of thousands of people um, that come to his church. Uh, he says, I, I don't see as much as I think I should see of Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Literally, that Greek word is experience a metamorphosis. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing... And that testing is against the gospel of Jesus Christ, not against the world or life. It's the testing against the gospel of Jesus Christ. By testing against the gospel, you can then discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and when I say there's very little transformation, what, what do we mean by that? What would John Piper mean? What would I mean? What would another pastor mean? I would say it's this, and, and I think other pastors would too. And it's coming right out of Ephesians, what we just what we just finished up with, it's it's that we're really not very good at putting off the old and putting on the new. Remember that in Ephesians 4? Put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put off this, put on the new. We're really not very good at that. Rather, what we like to do, and I'm guilty of this too, what we like to do is, is, is we like to keep the old but then dress it up with Jesus. Put on the facade of Jesus but keep the old. And here's what I think is the biggest manifestation of this challenge that we have we just won't let go of our idols we just won't putting off the old means letting go of your false gods and we just we won't, We 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 want jesus but we really want our worldly stuff more we want our power we want our status we want our politics we want our way we want our wealth we want our causes our comfort and our position we are, in effect, functional atheists. We say that we believe, but we struggle to live by it. And I thought I was the only pastor that felt this way. And then I read this, and then I started reading other articles and books, and I started asking around, and I find out, find out that this is actually kind of widespread. It's, it's, it's something that I kept to myself for years, because I thought I was the only one. Exper- and, and, and in fact, I would question my call all the time because of it. But other pastors say the same thing. Now let me let me tell you. I know there is transformation. I can't possibly see it all. Um, what I what I hear about and see mostly as a pastor is all the garbage that's going on in your life, and I understand that, and, and that's why I'm here. But uh, I, I can't possibly see it all, and neither can neither can John Piper. And and I'm the one who says, and I still stand by this, and I still believe this, that generally transformation takes place a half an inch at a time, and that those who expect it to take place. Um, uh, uh, miles at a time are, are, have, have a poor expectation of, of reality. So I get it. It seems, it seems slow. But that doesn't excuse the fact that the stranglehold that our idols have on us is breathtaking. We can say that transformation is slow because it is slow, but there's also, there's also the reality that it's slow because we just won't let go of our idols. Consumerism runs rampant in the church. It doesn't run rampant in the African church. I don't know if you know that. Or in the South American church. Because they don't have anything. They don't have coffee and good parking, transportation. You know. There's no consumerism there. It, consumerism runs rampant in the church today. And that's a big problem. We are a church. We are not Nordstrom's. Let's take, here you go. I've already stepped in it, I'm going to step in it deeper. Let's take one of our many idols, one that, uh, uh, one of our biggest idols, if not the biggest, judging from the words and deeds of people all around me and all the conversations that I have and everything that I'm reading, and let's talk about that. What's the biggest idol? Is it education? Is it career? Is it rights? Your rights. Is it wealth? Is it comfort? Is it your pastor? yes that happens too Um, the elders told me that could be a whole nother sermon about how people idolize their pastors and let me just tell you something i make a horrible false god false gods never fail to fail and i am a horrible false god but no it's not any of those let's talk about politics we're going to take a deep dive into politics i have found as a pastor that the people who tell us at Redemption Church to never meddle in politics when we preach the gospel, even when the text that we're preaching is something that our current political context is dealing with, those people who tell us never to meddle in politics, they're the ones who especially have a problem with the idol of politics. It's their greatest idol, their greatest false god. It's their politics. And it's Democrats and Republicans, conservatives, progressives, independents, it doesn't matter. I've, I've found, here's what, if you could ever get into into a staff meeting inside baseball, into an elders meeting, here's what you'd found. We found that it's just fine for me or Cody or Josh to preach something political as long as you agree with it. And the reason is because so many of us now find our identity not in Jesus but in our politics. That's our identity. Read your social media profile. Is what you're against bigger than what you're for? The Gospel and Jesus? Is Jesus even mentioned in your social media profile? Or is it Trump and Obama? Read your social media profile. I read them all the time. It's scary. We don't find our identity in in Jesus, but in our politics, our causes, our view on policies, and our candidates. And when we somehow affirm that, you just feel so good about yourself, and you love Redemption Church. But when we don't, Katie, bar the door. Uh, And and if you think I'm the only one who thinks this, this is widespread. I I want you to look at this tweet this week from the Babylon Bee. Look at this. Politics now, nation's fastest growing religion. (laughs) And if you don't know what the Babylon Bee is, it's it's satire. It's kind of like the onion for Christians. So the Babylon Bee recognizes this is a problem too. It's not just here. It's everywhere. We we are so far off track in the American church and it's really, really sad. Uh, It's kind of like with sin. I have found over and over that people who aren't committing adultery are just fine when we call out the sin of adultery. But if you're having an affair and I preach on adultery, this church sucks. Gossipers hate it when the text calls us out for gossiping. All those passages about Loving, helping, and serving the immigrant, the sojourner, and the alien, anathema to those who worship at the altar of the wall. All those passages about submitting to the governing authorities, anathema to those who worship at the altar of a world without borders. None of you are worshiping Jesus. You're worshiping policy. Policy. Here you go. Transformation will not happen in our life unless idols and false gods are challenged, not affirmed. And this is one of our biggest idols. And until we confront it and break it, we will never be transformed by the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. You see, if the church is simply supposed to be your echo chamber, Don't make a church like Redemption, one that preaches and teaches the full counsel of the word of God and the gospel. Don't make a church like this your home, because sooner or later you're going to be very unhappy here. Transformation only happens when our idols and our false gods are identified and challenged. It's that simple. Church is not about changing others. It's about changing us. Jonathan Lehman, in his most recent book, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age, writes this, Church and state are distinct God-given institutions. But the truth is, every church is political all the way down and all the way through. And every government is a deeply religious battleground of God's. No one separates their politics and religion. Not the Christian, not the agnostic, not the secular progressive. It's impossible. Trying to ignore these truths is part of the problem. The holy battle rages on, even if we deny it. Our gods determine our morality, and they determine our politics, unavoidably. They are not always consistent with one another. It's not always apparent to us, but it's always there. There is no such thing as spiritually neutral politics. And I would add to Lehman's observations, there is no such thing as a politically neutral Christian. The only time we want political neutrality in the church is when it challenges our false gods. And I am in the camp that firmly believes that the greatest idol in the church today in America is politics. It's an idol for the conservative Republican. It's an idol for the progressive Democrat. It's, it's an, it, 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 the, the idol is worshipped and manifests differently depending on your persuasion. But the problem is, is that, that both are trying to hijack the gospel. Both sides are trying to hijack the gospel for their political purposes. But to this, I would argue that there's even a bigger, more important underlying God. Why the manifestation of the problem of politics? There's something that underlies even that. We gotta dig even deeper. The bigger idol, the bigger problem is power. power. Whether we admit it or not, whether we say it or not, we just all want power. That's really what it is. And this is sort of the the item now that we feel like we can acquire. it. We believe, by our words and actions, that the way to have power, acquire power, and to keep power is through politics. Power. Others have it, we want it. The power to control, the power to dictate, the power to make other people in our image. Political power, we believe, is our ticket to controlling others, corporately and individually. We try to dress it up. This is the part that grabs me. We try to dress it up as what Jesus would really want. But it's really about us. It's about our false God. Politics is an idol, but it is the mechanism of our deepest underlying uh, idol, and that's power. And when the Bible talks about things that we think are political, the most interesting thing is how the Bible talks about those things in a context of laying down power. Of giving up power or using power only to serve others as Joseph did in Genesis 37 through 50. But this false god thing, this idol worship is a problem. And it's been a problem for centuries. It's not just our problem. Jesus knew it was a problem. He said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Paul writes this in Uh, Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, politics included, power included, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And then he writes later on in that same chapter, Brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. That's, that's Paul's way of saying that the only God that most people have is what their desires are, what their false gods are, their idols, whatever it is that isn't the cross of Christ. And they glory in their shame. They're happy about it. They're proud of the fact that they reject Jesus and that they glory in in the desires of their flesh, the desires of their eyes, and the pride of their life with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on a related note, what's next on the preaching calendar? Won't you be excited it, it, the next nine weeks, we're going to do an overview of the Minor Prophets. We're calling it Major Lessons from the minor, minor Prophets. And if you don't believe that there are politics in the Bible, you have never read the prophets. Keller, Tim Keller writes this, What should the role of Christians be, uh, in politics be? More people than ever are asking that question. Christians cannot pretend. They can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for this social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was uh, what we would now call getting political, were actually supporting slavery by not doing so. To not be political is to be political. So if you want a church that doesn't preach politics, you're being political, okay? I'm not going to preach politics. Cody's not going to preach politics. Josh isn't going to preach politics. But when the word of God deals with something that you deem as political, we're not going to run away from it. That's part of what Redemption Church does. And our goal in studying the prophets is to know the character and heart of God, to understand what's important to him and what his agenda is, not ours. But that will also take us deeply into what God has to say about things that you and I get very squeamish about. For instance, first and foremost, is our faith real? Or do we have, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, an appearance of godliness and yet we deny its power? And then from there, what does God say to the faithful about the poor, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, the one suffering unjustly, the sojourner or stranger, the refugee, the prisoner, the elderly, and the disabled? You see, God is not bound by policy or politics, this is part of our idol. When someone asked me as a pastor about political candidates and political parties and political platforms, this is just my experience that I've experienced over and over and over, I now at this point mostly assume that it's not going to be a legitimate conversation and here's why. Because I found that the person asking is really not interested in what I think or what the scripture thinks. They're only interested in whether or not I'm going to affirm their political position. And if I don't, then they want to spend all the time telling me about their politics, and I didn't ask them. I don't care. (laughs) I'll talk politics with you, but I want to talk about it in the context of Jesus Christ. The prophets never found their salvation in politics, uh, policy, kings, or candidates. They found it in the one true God. And that's why the prophets are relevant for today. The way people used to talk about Barack Obama and the way people talk about Donald Trump today is nothing short of idol worship. Those of you who love Donald Trump and those of you who hate Donald Trump, and we have both in this room right now. Some of you are shifting uncomfortably right now in your chairs. Those of you who love Donald Trump, those of you who hate Donald Trump, have you ever stopped to think how much Donald Trump is controlling your life and your mind and your heart? My assumption is that many of you have a have a statue of Donald Trump sitting on your dashboard in your car. For some of you it's a votive and for others of you it's a voodoo doll. But either way, Donald Trump is an idol. Isn't that sad and tragic? I mean, come on, just admit it. Isn't that just sad? Is he really your savior, those of you who love him? Is he really your savior? And those of you who hate him, is it really going to be your salvation to get rid of him? Really? From the conversations I have, I believe that you think that's true. The Bible says the love of Christ compels us. The Bible says have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, to be filled with and live under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not to be drunk on Donald Trump, whether it's a good drunk Or a bad drunk. Be politically involved, but don't worship in that arena. I vote. I have my thoughts about this stuff. I don't place any of my faith in it. In fact, the track record of all politicians against the track record of Jesus, who has the better track record, and yet we keep going back to politics. That's really sad. If everything that Donald Trump does is right or wrong, no matter what, or, or if everything that Barack Obama does is right or wrong, no matter what, then you have a false god. If you can't just, as Aaron Baer says, if you can't just take a politician and call balls and strikes with him, no matter what, that was good, that was bad, this was, this was right down the middle, this is a problem, and, and, and that's a problem. If you can't do that, no matter how, who it is and what uh, aisle, uh, side of the aisle he's on, then you have placed ultimate faith in that politician. Lehman again, one sign that you identify more with your ideological tribe than you do with Jesus is that you cannot hear what's good when it comes from another tribe. It's amazing how much people will fight for the Constitution but ignore the Bible, and what's really ironic to me is that most don't know anything about either. Again, here's Lehman. Last time I'll quote Lehman. And don't blame Lehman for this message. It's me. The church's most powerful political word is the gospel. And the church's most powerful political testimony is being the church. There is more political power in the gospel and being the church than there is in electing a president, installing a Supreme Court justice, or in changing the Constitution. Just as our hearts are battlegrounds of gods, so the public square is a battleground of gods. Either we ask the state to play savior or, to say it a different way, we demand the state play servant to our gods. Sometimes our gods agree with one another, sometimes they don't. And that's when the fighting starts in the public square. A nation's public square is where citizens wage war on behalf of their gods. Just consider the type of environment we live in now this way. If I quote the New York Times, half of you in this room will think, hey, maybe Frank is not beyond beyond redemption. Maybe he does know Jesus. And the other half of you will think, well, looks like our pastor is going straight to hell. He just quoted the New York Times. I wonder in what level of Dante's inferno he will reside. <laughs> but it seems that nobody is thinking, is the quote true? And if so, what can I learn from it? By the way, this idea that we heard all through the Brett Kavanaugh hearings from both sides that if you're wrong about one thing, you're wrong about everything. Or, or if you lied about one thing, you've lied about everything. I want you to know that that is absolutely true theologically. We've been saying this and preaching this and teaching this since the beginning of Redemption Church. It's true theologically. If you've sinned once, you are a sinner. James, in his New Testament letter, tells us that if you've broken one law, you have broken the law. If you go five minutes over the speed limit, you are a lawbreaker. You didn't break one law, you broke the law. That's what James tells us. And since we were all born into sin, we have all sinned. So we're sinners. We need a savior. And remember, if it's true about Kavanaugh or Ford, everything that they were saying, it's also true about you and me. You and I, we're not qualified to do our jobs. We're not qualified to be spouses. We're not qualified to be parents. We're not qualified to be friends. You and I shouldn't serve in church, and I shouldn't preach, and we all suck. Amen and happy Sunday. Is there no forgiveness anywhere? That's why we need Jesus. So funny how no matter where we go, we keep coming back to Jesus. Here's the second to the last item. hanging there with me. We now live in what I call a drop-the-mic culture. And that is also sad. And some of you know what I mean. The rest of you, you'll catch on by the end of this. A drop-the-mic culture no longer discusses, debates, and learns. Rather... All of us are looking for that one thing to say that shuts down all discussion, and then we metaphorically and arrogantly drop the mic and walk away. Case closed, I win, you lose. The the drop-the-mic culture demonstrates one of our deep-seated problems of of idolatry and identity. We so want our identity to be found in our cause, and our correct political position, but we found that even that's not enough anymore. Our true identity, it seems to me, is now found in the intensity with which we hold these political positions, as evidenced by the -the drop-the-mic culture. In other words, people think, I I I believe this so strongly, and it is so much a part of who I am that I don't even want to talk to you. Mic drop. So, here we go. Here's an example of a drop-the-mic topic. Immigration is a drop-the-mic Topic, I I can't engage in a serious, legitimate conversation with anybody about this because everybody wants to drop a mic one way or another. If I talk about how the Bible tells us repeatedly, read your scriptures, of God's love for the stranger, the immigrant, the alien, or the sojourner, I am met with, we are a nation of laws. Boom, mic drop, discussion over, I'm an idiot. But guess what? Israel, the context in which God's word was written, was also a nation of laws. Boom! Another mic needs repair. (laughs) And Jerusalem had a wall around it. Boom! Boom! Mics everywhere needing to be repaired. You see how this goes? Israel had laws. Yeah, they did. They had laws. And they were expected to follow them. Israel also had walls. And Israel was supposed to love the immigrant. Nobody wants to live in tension anymore. So few people know how to give and take. So few people know how to debate and discuss and learn from each other, especially from each other's differences. We just want to be around people who are like us and affirm us. I think we were better and smarter and more interesting when we weren't so focused on dropping mics everywhere. The Israelites had to live in tension with God. They had laws from God. And God also said that they were to love the stranger, the alien, and the immigrant, the one different from them, the one entering their land, the one crossing their border. What do you do with that? It's not that simple, is it? The reality is we have to have laws, and they should be obeyed and observed and respected. The reality is also that every human being is made in the image of God and has dignity and from the Christ follower should receive mercy and compassion. Welcome to faithful gospel living. It is living intention. Do you want to drop a mic or do you want a hearing from the person who is different from you? Which do you want? Here's the problem. All of us, all of us, are correct in what we affirm. We're all correct in what we affirm. The pro-immigration people are correct in affirming the immigrant's dignity, need, and image-bearing. The pro-law people are correct in affirming that we need order and not chaos, and we need a better system for immigration. We are correct in what we affirm, but we're wrong in what we deny. The pro-immigrant people are wrong when they deny the importance and respect of the laws, even though they don't like the laws. And the pro-law people are wrong when they deny the need and the dignity of the sojourner. And honestly, it's, really, it's just really weird for me, and, and I, I, I run around with a lot of pastors. They all feel the same way, pretty much. Because on this issue, we don't have a place. We just don't have a place. Because everybody's trying to carve us into their little section. I'm wrong and uncompassionate with the pro-immigration people, and I'm wrong and stupid with the pro-law people. I'm OK with that. They did worse to Paul. But it's the way it is today. And I'm just going to leave this part of the message open, because I'd, what I'd like us to do is just put away our mics and, and just think about this stuff. But consider, yeah, I have the mic. I get the last word here. All right? I want you to understand, I, don't have an immig- I, I do not have a position on immigration policy. I'm not trained in that. My master's degree is not in, uh, in uh, public policy. And I didn't go to Harvard, where they teach that. I, I, have, a, I have a degree in divinity and a degree in communication. I, don't, I, I can't write legislation. I don't understand all of the issues. And so I have no expertise in that area, although I know some of you think I should be involved that way. That would just be a waste of my time and a waste of your time. But I can talk about this with some level of expertise. The Torah, the ancient Mosaic law code, that we find in the Old Testament. The Torah, God's law, is the only ancient law code, the only one out of many that required of his people that the alien, stranger, or sojourner be treated exactly the same as your own ethnicity, kin, race, or group. The biblical scholar Nahum Sarna writes that it is only in the stranger, alien, or sojourner that human beings can find their humanity. It is only there that we are able to understand how we are all created in the image of God. I'm going to try to land this plane now, and I know it's been a very turbulent ride, and I want a smooth landing, so I'm going to turn my attention to something else. It's just a reminder. We say every Sunday, Redemption is one church with nine congregations. Let me unpack that just a little bit. I know some of you are tired of the word unpack. Let me define that for you just a little bit. Um, being one church with nine congregations means that we're going to have strength, alignment and tension. Our strength is what Tyler Johnson has said for years. We're better together. It's the reason these churches came together to form Redemption Church. We're better together. There's great wisdom in having many counselors. I have eight other lead pastors, essentially at my back and call, for wisdom and counsel and help. It's great. And the economy of scale of being part of redemption, you have no idea how much money that saves us. Alignment. We are aligned theologically. We, we have a reformed position on our theology, and that's, that's the only way you can be a part of redemption church. And if you don't know what that is, you can study it or ask Cody to go out for coffee, and he'll play you a little song on his, on his um, guitar. We're aligned in our philosophy of leadership in local churches and and we have chemistry with each other. We genuinely like each other at Redemption Church. I love my brothers and sisters at Alhambra and West Mesa and Gilbert and yes, even Tempe. (laughs) But then there's tension. All worthwhile endeavors have a tension. If they didn't have tension, they wouldn't be worthwhile. Your car can't run without tension. If your car didn't have tension, it would just sit on the side of the road. Also, because we're one one church with nine congregations, we are centralized, unified, and decentralized. Centralized. Our payroll, our facilities management, our contracted services, and our insurance is all centralized. And there is an economy of scale there. If we did that on our own as an independent church, it would cost us 20% of our revenue. We pay 10% into Redemption Central for those services. It's awesome. We're unified. There are things that we don't do exactly the same, but we're unified in them. The preaching calendar is pretty unified. Our seven core values as a church are unified, and if you don't know what those are, you can get a bookmark at the Connect Desk. And then there are things that are decentralized. We do a lot more refugee ministry at Arcadia because of our proximity with refugees than they do at Gateway. That's, that's just, but they do a lot more with different uh, demographics than we do because of where they're located. Our prison ministries are manifest way differently depending on the location. Um, We have deacons. Not all the other congregations have a deacon board. So decentralized. And then lastly, what does it mean, we say this every Sunday, when we say Redemption Church is outward focused? We're gospel-centered and outward focused. What does that outward focus uh, thing mean? That's one of the seven values, by the way. Gospel-centered, outward focused. Well, we express our our outward-focusedness in four primary, major areas. We we love and serve the poor. And when we say the poor, it's not just people who are poor in terms of money, but poor in terms of any resource, relationships, network, mobility, or status. We also love the nations. And we love the nations not just globally, but locally. Sixty years ago, to have a cross-cultural experience, you had to cross a border. Today, you just have to walk across the street, and you're going to have a cross-cultural experience. We love the nations, globally and locally. We also love leadership development. It's why Redemption Church has so many young people uh, uh, hanging around and being trained, and we plant churches, because we love a culture of leadership. We also love the local church, whether it's a Redemption Church, or it's New City, or or it's Christ Church over on Indian School, whether it's renovation, we, don't, we love the local churches, and we want local churches to be healthy and to grow. And so no matter what, no matter how powerful the cultural force is, no matter how many books are written about the new way to do church, we are going to be a church that proclaims the gospel, preaches and teaches from the Bible, and calls people to love and serve their neighbor in their context. And that means loving the poor, serving the nations, developing leaders, and helping churches. Thank you for being my church family. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that um, your will would be done, not only in heaven, but also on earth. And that means that we have to be involved. So God, I pray that you would empower us and lead us and encourage us in that. Our prayer is that Christ would be our God, our only God, our one and only God. It's not that we don't have other things to be involved in or enjoy or pursue but we need to remember who Jesus is first and foremost in all that we do. God, help us to do that. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, but also the wisdom that comes from your word and your life. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.